You can go ahead and open your Bibles, phones, Isaiah 53, um, the text that Jeff read this morning. Um, but as you're turning there, just let you know a little bit on the inside of, um, yeah, even what I heard today, you know, just throughout the day, often in the home, help me. Can you help me? I need help. If you're a parent, teacher, which new number of y'all are in this room, something you're familiar with is children seem to be so quick to be willing to reach out knowing that they need help from the outside. And yet somehow, um, strangely, and yet um, so often as we get older, it seems like we tend to look less outside and feel more comfortable, more confident in our own strength and our own abilities. And somehow we tend to think that we don't need help from the outside, but it's um, that we can manage the solution. We can manage the rescue on our own. Something that Josh alluded to this morning with self-help and the prominence of that and industry from what I understand that actually um, brings in revenues of around $13 billion a year. It's prominent. And yet it does not address the greatest need. And it certainly doesn't address the greatest solution for the help is outside of us for the sin that's within us. So looking at that revenue, of course, the world um, is full of people that recognize they need help. However, they don't recognize what's going on in their hearts, don't recognize how great the problem is, and don't know or refuse to look at God's provision for this help. This evening, we'll look at both, both the great need and the great rescue here in um, Isaiah 53. Uh, Just quickly before reading the text, uh, just a a couple points on the context of it. It's um, often thought to be the the fourth song recorded in Isaiah of the suffering servant songs, very poetic, just incredible imagery. Uh, this fourth one filled with thanksgiving, as well as we see here, great suffering. Um, Isaiah is writing a, to a people that they know their need, a people of exile, a people that know they need redemption, they need uh, rescue, they need forgiveness. And many view this uh, particular section also as a description of that second exodus. Um, which God so kindly provides in Jesus. So if you look here, follow along in the text, Isaiah 53 verses five and six, they uh, read like this according to the prophet's writing. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, really, the the point this morning from, or this evening, rather, from this text is very simple, very clear. God has provided and procured our rescue. Another way of saying that would be God has provided and purchased our rescue. And just breaking it up into two points, um, there's a personal rescuer and there's a personal rescue. So looking first at the personal rescuer, and really my desire uh, in just thinking through this text throughout the week is that if you walk away with hearing just one thing, just thinking about one thing, it would be that in the center of this text is a man. Um, It's the work of a man. It's an incredibly personal account here, focusing in on the characteristics and the work of this person. Now, we know him, at least most of us, if not all of us do, right, sitting here gathered tonight as the God-man, Jesus Christ. 
But as verse 4 shows us, and as we know from much of the world around us, he was not and he has not been recognized so often. And so how should he be recognized? And looking at this text here, I would suggest at least two characteristics of this servant become clear. And that's that he is holy and he is loving. He was holy. And because he was holy, he was fit for the work of redemption. How is it that a man could take on himself the punishment of another's sins and provide healing and peace for the sinner, as this text suggests? Certainly, in this room, none of us would dare to put ourselves forward as being sufficient for that, being able for that. And none of us, if you'll permit me, look at another person in this room and think that that person's sufficient either. It requires a different kind of person. Because we know about ourselves, we have our own sins that require judgment. We have our own sins that need to be dealt with before we could even begin thinking about dealing with somebody else's sins as much as we might be prone to do that at times. And the Old Testament texts, they also teach us, the priests themselves were not sufficient. They themselves required an offering for their own sin. They required the blood of a bull, according to Leviticus 4. So this redemption requires a uniquely holy man. Of course, we know that man is unique in that he is not just a man. He is the God-man, Jesus Christ, come down from heaven. This servant described in this text, this man, he is certainly unique from the priests that present the offerings. Also, because he doesn't just present it. He himself is the offering. The presentation and that which is being presented. He is, in fact, the lamb. If you see that in verse 7, looking just beyond the text we're looking at right now, he is himself the lamb led to the slaughter. And I just want to highlight, I think, a distinction we see in this. Um, we know the imagery of the lamb, that sacrificial lamb presented for the forgiveness of sins. But here we see the lamb led. And there's a distinction here from what we see in our own text here in verse 5, or rather in verse 6. And that, whereas he's the lamb being led quietly to the slaughter, we ourselves identify like the sheep having gone astray. We ourselves are likened to these silly sheep wandering around, each going wherever he would please, apart from God's gentle leading, apart from his instruction. How different is this servant who quietly walks in the way he's being led? He himself indeed is pure. He is the unblemished lamb, sufficient for redemption. But not only that, he is loving. Loving enough to complete this work. And this is surprising. Just as it is surprising that there could be someone sufficient to stand between all of us men and God for the redemption of our sins. How surprising is it that in his sufficiency, he would lovingly pursue that work and complete it for our good. He was committed to the work for our redemption. And I don't think there's any other way better to describe the character of one so committed, the work of a servant like that, than the word loving. He's loved the word fully. And on account of his love, he's humbly received, or he did humbly receive the shame and the punishment that didn't belong to him. Take, he took it upon himself 
although it belonged to others, it belonged to the world. But he loved the world, including you and me. And he was compelled himself to suffer for our good. And this, I think because of that, certainly why Paul can think upon Christ in his letter to the church in Philippi and in the second chapter of Philippians write the encouragement, the challenge to them to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Now, thanks be to God that by his grace, and it is by his grace, when we read this text tonight, most, if not all of us in this room, can't help but see Jesus. We can't help but see how Jesus has completed this text tonight. But we also know, as these prayer requests have just indicated, how true it is for much of the world that so many don't see him in this text. Who has Isaiah's audience envisioned from this text? What kind of Messiah could be provided to accomplish such a text? I think of the Ethiopian eunuch on his way back home in Acts chapter 8 in the middle of the desert, coming across Philip and God's kindness. Reading the text, Isaiah 53. And then asking Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? Is it about himself or someone else? And if you're familiar with the passage, if you're not, rather, I'll encourage you to look at it later, to consider what Philip responds with. If you look at it, you'll see how he responded. It says that he then opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, this very text, he told him the good news about Jesus. This text points to Jesus. This text is all about Jesus. Jesus is the rescuer from this text. Of course, we're reminded also, on the other hand, of the crowds in Jerusalem that we saw in this morning's text through the preaching. Those crowds failed to see the man, the suffering servant, when he was fulfilling this text right before them, right before their eyes. His love was missed. His glory was missed. He was thought to be cursed. And how much truth there was in that, really, but not as they thought about it. And so this evening, it's so good for us to be reminded of his holiness and his love and his glory in this work of redemption. See Christ. See the Christ that first, or that Peter in first Peter would tell the church and remind them about that. See him who bore our sins on his, in his body on the cross. See the same Christ that the centurion saw at the end of Mark, that whenever he died, all he could think and profess at that point was truly, this man was the son of God. See God's wisdom and provision in Jesus. We're not very good, I don't think, especially in our adulthood, at looking for help and salvation outside of ourselves. We're often likely to miss it, but God has revealed it to us. He's revealed, it, revealed our need for it. He's hinted at it. He's pointed to it. And eventually at the 
right time, he manifested it in Jesus. There's no other savior. Now, time permits, I'll move on to the personal rescue here, um, which I think is the crux of what's really going on. It's the work in this passage. And why was such an individual required to give such a costly work? Certainly, it was because of our sin. We must recognize that sin is the greatest problem. It's the root of our pain, our grief, our sorrow, those things that are mentioned in this text. Right now, we need to be reminded that this is ultimate when it comes to the problems that we face and that the world faces. It's the sin. It's our rebellion against the creator, robbing him of his honor, and seeking somehow to live on our own terms rather than his own. All for the result, or all ending in the result rather, of our hurt, hostility, death. And although we don't want to minimize the reality of the many problems around us, we need help for our sin more than any other. On one hand, we know our sin in light of God's holiness. We know it from the law revealed. It teaches us our sin, our sinfulness. But on the other hand, tonight, I would encourage you to look at your sin in the view of this text. Look at the greatness, the severity, the the weight of it in light of the cost that Jesus bore for it. It is the one problem that needs help from the outside, to be sure. So we find ourselves with this need for forgiveness. We need atonement. That is, we need the penalty of our sins to be paid so that we might be purified and made right with God. We need help for this. And in this text, there's this rich theological theme of the substitutionary atonement. This very atonement coming by the means of somebody else, by a substitute. And this isn't a foreign idea. This is an idea that was begun by God, put forth in the Old Testament, uh, put forth through worship of bringing the guilt offerings, put forth with the Passover lamb, but never sufficient, never enough with finality. As this substitutionary atonement is required, Jesus did not seek only to identify with us for the sake, to sympathize with us, which he did, to provide an example, which he did. But Jesus, in this atonement, suffered and died in our place with our sins upon himself, receiving so that we might receive the healing and forgiveness through him and through his death and through his resurrection. One writer, um, John Stott, coming from the book, uh, The Cross of Christ, which I'd commend, um, a wonderful book, just to dive into this idea of penal substitutionary atonement, the cross, the significance, um, a very readable book as well. He has to say this in that book. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be, which of course is on the cross. Now, if you haven't dove in, looking at the text carefully, do that right now, because I don't want you to miss this exchange. First of all, just consider the abundance of pronouns in this text. Again, I want, I told you, I want you to see the man. This is an intensely personal text. It's screaming, he, 
he, the Messiah, the suffering servant, who we know is Jesus. Look at these pronouns. He, he, us, we, we, him, us. We have to see the man in this text. Our salvation cannot rest upon a system of well-doing, of law-keeping. It can't rely on an ideology or a philosophy. Our salvation is personal. And there's a very personal exchange that occurs between the sinner and the Savior. This is a personal gospel in its provision and in its reception. I think, and if you care to, you could argue with me later, that there's this structure, this chiastic structure, where there's kind of this a similar thought going back and forth, kind of like a thought A to thought B, and then that thought B going back again to thought A. You can see this exchange here, I think, between men and this man. You see the griefs and the sorrows for the peace and the healing. You see our sin for the judgment. He received the judgment. We received the benefits. We're meant to see this redemption coming from outside of ourselves, from another source, from this man put forth by God. And this is the gospel. By God's grace, a transaction has occurred on our behalf. According to his provision, our debt has been paid and we've been offered peace with God and healing from sin. And ultimately, one day we will see that healing and all the effects of sin healed as well when we see Christ face to face in glory. To be sure, this redemption was provided also through the Messiah's suffering. Be careful not to sanitize the cost of redemption. It's easy for icons, traditions, I think to begin to contribute to kind of a quaintness of our religion, of our faith, and of our redemption. This text is talking about the slaughter of a man who was pierced and crushed for our sins. This redemption was tremendously costly. It was personally costly. Finally, this was God's glorious plan. The servant intentionally, willingly, lovingly suffered for our sakes. Mention that lamb being led to the slaughter. We know that Jesus's, this was Jesus's purpose to fulfill this text. And I put that to you because we know it based on the gospels and that he talked about it numerous times, telling his disciples that he must go and suffer and die. They didn't get it. People don't speak like this at the age of 30. But his plans, his purposes were different. He was intent on fulfilling this text. And so we must look outside ourselves and not to the world for healing. We must look to the Savior for the healing of our grief and sorrow. We must stop trying to crush our sin and our own efforts because Jesus has crushed it. Trust him, rest in his work. It's true that for the need of forgiveness, he came to the cross. It's true that for forgiveness, we ought, because of our forgiveness, we ought to continue to walk in Christ, affected by the merits, the blessings, the benefits poured out from the cross. 
finish with just a final comment, two comments really. One, in brief, tell people about this offer. Tell people about this rescue. Everyone has the need. Point them to the Savior that they all need. And then, speaking to the church, I think of Acts 20, when Paul's speaking to the elders on the beach, and he's commending them to care for the church because the church has been purchased by God's blood. The church is precious. We are precious. You in Christ, based on this great cost provided through his son and the redemption he accomplished, are precious. This healing is not limited to a personal improvement, but rather it's demonstrated in the community of God's redeemed people living out life in Christ together before the community, before the world. So in faith, boldness, and confidence of the work that's already been completed, live well in him, rest well in him, and profess him that all might know.